This Dharma talk by Joan Sutherland is the third of a series of four titled Reconsidering Mindfulness. It was given at Cerro Gordo Temple in Santa Fe, New Mexico on March 15, 2012. Some quotes that Iris Murdoch said were attributed to Simone Weil. The attributions have been corrected in the PDF transcription available on the Dharma Talks page of our website, joansutherlanddharmaworks.org. Good evening, Bodhisattvas. We are tonight in the third of a series of talks about mindfulness. And where we began was the, um, the idea that for the time being, at least, the way the Dharma has landed in the West appears to be with mindfulness. That seems to be the thing that's really sort of caught fire here. And so I thought it would be worthwhile to take a look at um, mindfulness in its context. Is it different if we look at it within its traditional context as when it's been kind of taken out of the context and made a thing in and of itself? So the first night, the first talk, I asked you all, uh, what when I said mindfulness, what that meant to you. And people said the th- kinds of things that you would certainly expect, like paying attention and a certain kind of presence and doing ordinary things as a practice. And um, I think it was Valentine's Day and we were eating chocolate with our tea, as I recall. And uh, Deborah said, when eating chocolate, just chocolate. <laughs> and... Um, all of that, of course, is, is true about mindfulness. And, and um, if you don't mind, we'll, we'll shorthand that whole constellation of ideas as showing up. Okay, So that mindfulness is really, in the deepest sense, showing up. If we're thinking about mindfulness as a Buddhist practice, that showing up is going to be absolutely necessary. You know, the, the thing that has to happen first but it's not going to be sufficient. It's not going to be the whole deal. Um, and the reason is that, that any Buddhist practice is going to include a strong element of what we call unselfing. It's going to do something that's going to um, usher the self off the high stool under the spotlight at center stage and turn up the house lights and ask us to consider that it isn't all about that thing sitting on the high stool under the spotlight, but that it's about the whole world in which um, that, that thing is, um, is sitting. So that unselfing is that wonderful, surprising moment when the rug of the self gets kind of pulled out from under us and we free fall a little bit. We have some experience of what it's like when the concerns of the self under construction are not um, paramount, are not controlling the show. So that's the first thing that, that a Buddhist practice is extremely likely to contain. And the second thing that it's likely to contain beyond showing up is um, uh, what we would call in the West a kind of moral dimension. And by that I mean some awareness, some working with the way we are both affected by others, affected by the world, and the ways we in turn affect it. That's what I mean by a a moral dimension. Um, So... 
we could be forgiven for thinking that if mindfulness is just showing up, then that's the act of an individual heart-mind. That's something an individual heart-mind decides to do, decides to practice. Um, But if we bring in these other dimensions of unselfing and of of a question about the nature of our relationship with and how we affect others... Um, then maybe it begins to imply that mindfulness isn't actually the endeavor of a single heart-mind, but it is a relationship, essentially, that mindfulness requires relationship, has to take place there. It's a form of relationship. So, in what ways? Um, First, I'll talk a little bit about unselfing. And we had mentioned in an earlier talk kind of the the big unselfing that happens when mindfulness is in its original coupling with the practice of concentration. Because you would always get those two things together, traditionally. And that the kind of the, the, the deep point of both concentration and mindfulness is this unselfing. And the other side of the unselfing is this revelation of how big and mysterious the world, the universe, our this moment, this very moment, actually is. And concentration does that generally, and I'm speaking at a gross level, but generally concentration does that by, by allowing us to drop into very deep states of meditation and then um, sometimes through the bottom of those deep states of meditation into the vastness itself. And we can have a direct experience of how really big things are. And mindfulness does it, so that's a kind of focused light, a concentrated light. Uh, mindfulness does it, on the other hand, through this kind of diffuse light where it shows us by, um, by putting us into a, a, a deliberate and a mindful relationship with the world, how big the world is, how big the field is that we're in all the time, how many others are in that field, and kind of exactly what our proportion is to that, to that large field. So kind of the conclusion of that is that with mindfulness and concentration practices hand in hand, you get um, an experience of reality as gigantic, mysterious, uncontrollable, completely and inextricably interpermeated and asking something of us. Mindfulness in particular unselfs us by lifting our gaze, lifting the meditator's gaze from the floor or from the back of your eyelids to the horizon and so that we can really see how large and how weird the world actually is. Um, It makes us aware of, of how we don't exist in isolation. It, that's, that's, you know, such a large delusion and a delusion that causes so much sadness in us. But we don't exist in isolation, and the field we're part of is very big, and it's not under the control of our will. So, um, 
this unselfing that comes through mindfulness, because it has to do with this raising our eyes to the horizon and taking in the the, the true um, purport of the, the the moment we're in, is that it's it's after showing up, the next thing it is, is a willingness to be permeated. Um, Many Buddhist-speaking English talk about interconnection and interbeing and things like that. We use interpermeation because of that sense of not just sort of connected up by lines, you know, um, like tinker toys, but, but permeating each other, actually entering and, and mixing with each other. So mindfulness, after showing up, has to be a willingness to be permeated, to be affected, to not remain isolated and separate from the world. Because how can you be mindful of things? How can you pay attention if you think you're not interpermeating with them all the time? Um, how, do we, how do we signal that willingness to be affected by the world in this way. And it's here that I really believe that mindfulness has to be more than careful observation. Um, I, I notice in myself a desire for mindfulness to be described not just on the careful end of the spectrum, you know, careful sort of shading into preciousness sometimes, but that we might have some balance on the, on the other end of the spectrum where we talk about fierce mindfulness or mindfulness with abandon, which is a great oxymoron. <laughs> but, you know, what, what would, what's it like on that end of the spectrum? What's it like when there's a kind of um, all-in and not, not protective quality to that? So if, if we're willing to be permeated, if we're willing to be in and affected, then it, it's got to be something much more vulnerable than a kind of careful observation of the world. It, it seems to me it's got to be something more like a love song that we're singing to the world. So that brings me back to the poem I mentioned last time. Uh, Amachai's God's Change, Prayers Are Here to Stay. And the poem begins, In the street on a summer evening, I saw a woman writing on a piece of paper spread out against a locked wooden door. She folded it, tucked it between door and doorpost, and went on her way. And I didn't see her face, nor the face of the person who would read what she had written, and I didn't see the words. In this beginning of a poem, Amachai doesn't add anything. Um, There's nothing extra. I don't, are there any adjectives? I think the only adjective is locked and wooden about the door. No adjectives, no adverbs, just an unvarnished, simple description of this moment on a Jerusalem street, which allows us to just, I'll speak for myself, allows me to just fall um, completely into it. There's just here the presence of a profound appreciation of how rich the world is, just as it is, without embellishment, without opinion, without um, gussying up at all. Just the bare facts of the world are already miraculous. We were um, 
in the Koan Salon yesterday, we were talking about how uh, things were described as um, mysterious and wondrous, and I finally got on my hundredth go-round in the Blue Cliff Record that, that when things are described as mysterious and wondrous, mysterious refers to the you know, what is called in, in, in Chan the dark mysterious, the origin of all things, the, um, you know, the dharmakaya, the source, emptiness, all of that stuff. That's the mysterious. And then the manifest world, the world we're, we're in and interacting with all the time, that's the wondrous. So you've got everything being simultaneously mysterious and wondrous. And, and what Amakai is doing, what mindfulness does, is allow us to have this intimate relationship with the wondrous aspect of things. And also, as I, as I mentioned before, one of the things I love about this little um, snapshot of, of a moment from this poem is that he includes the mindfulness of what we don't know as well as what we know. So he says, I didn't see her face, nor the face of the person who would read what she had written, and I didn't see the words. And yet there's nothing missing in this moment. You know, the moment is complete, just as it is. So that's another aspect of mindfulness, not just what we can see or taste or smell or touch, but what we can't, what we can't know, the things we can't see that are, that are in the dark for us. And that mindfulness needs to include that depth as well as what is available to our conscious minds. So um, this love song to the world has a quality of appreciation about it. Um, so that the, whenever we talk about mindfulness, we're always using m- moments like um, washing the dishes or you know cutting up the carrots for dinner or w- whatever it is, and we're just doing that, you know. Um, but when I think about when I think about cutting the carrots for dinner from the fierce and abandoned end of the mindfulness spectrum, you know, then then the experience becomes something like orange crisp. Fresh water, splash, hummingbird out the window, you know, just this kind of everything. Not that we would label things like that, but that we would just become so aware of all of them and so appreciative of this this now that extends, as we um, have often said, from one end of the universe to the other and is appearing before us as carrots. So the practice of mindfulness, the taking up of this practice, um, becomes the, the answer to a desire to, um, to develop our capacity to notice and to love in this way. That's different. It's a different way of holding it. Mindfulness as our desire to develop the capacity to notice and to love. Um, if we're thinking about it that way, then each perception we throw into the world is a, is, um, a kind of um, uh, these activities of mindfulness, like, like looking and, and hearing and touching and tasting, smelling. All of these activities of mindfulness become questions, they're inquiries we're making about um, how things are, wondering how things are. And we're holding reality, quote-unquote, in mind, 
not in the way of the self-under construction, which is, can sometimes be a kind of habitual replaying of reality, you know, a kind of rumination about reality. But we're holding it in mind by wondering about it, by considering it, by listening for what's new, what we didn't previously know. We're keeping company with reality in real time. And think about how much you actually do that. <laughs> so... Um, For me, one of the, the most uh, wonderful writers on, on this subject is actually a uh, 20th century European philosopher named Simone Weil. And she talked about attention, which means meant for her what mindfulness means for us. And she called attention a just and loving gaze directed upon an individual reality. Uh, she was writing in French, and so um, just, just means more than fair, which is kind of what we think of just. It means like um, accurate, perfectly matched to the, to the situation. So if we, if we substitute mindfulness for attention, mindfulness is a just and loving gaze directed upon reality. And then um, somewhere else she said that 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 reality upon which we are turning our just and loving gaze is that which is revealed to the patient eye of love. Reality is that which is revealed to the patient eye of love. So when we talk about mindfulness, we're not talking about doing something because we want to be better people or more at ease in our own skin or any of that kind of thing, we're talking about wanting to get closer to reality. And that, um, that patient eye of love, which is such a good description of mindfulness, um, becomes, becomes our focus, becomes the thing we're doing, becomes the way we hold the practice. And our intention is, in our language, to become intimate as a result of that. So, um, Vey also talked about how we direct our attention outward by its, by its nature. And, we, and it moves away from the self towards what she called the great surprising variety of the world. And the ability to direct attention that way is also love. She called this kind of attention unsentimental, which means not about us, because that's what sentimental means, detached, unselfish, and objective. Um, and when she spoke of detached, she, she didn't mean detached from the things of the world or detached from one's feelings. She meant specifically detached from what, what she called the ego's needs and tyrannies. That that's the nature of detachment. And I think that's a really important thing for us to understand in terms of the Dharma as well. Um, to hold uh, detachment or unattachment from the ego's tyrannies and needs, as she said. Um, that things can be looked at and loved without being seized and used. Without being appropriated into the greedy organism of the self. So we might think um, that this would be fairly easy to do with people and things we enjoy. (laughs) 
and um, maybe doable with things about which we feel neutral uh, and possible maybe to extend to things that we find um, merely annoying or mildly troublesome but that it might be really difficult to do with things that are of a kind of difficult thusness for us. And so um, I, just, I just want to note that mindfulness of the kind we're talking about doesn't mean that you have to me- immediately feel completely wonderful about whatever's happening. That's not what a just and loving gaze means. Um, when difficult things appear, it might mean at first simply being willing to acknowledge that they are so and to not flee. Being able to stay what's uncomfortable, stay with what's uncomfortable or painful um, in, the, in the feelings they invoke in us without immediately protecting ourselves by jumping to opinions and judgments. That might be um, exactly mindfulness. That might be as much of a just and loving gaze and a, and a true just and loving gaze in that moment. And then, of course, we hold the possibility that it could change over time. So um, the poet Mary Oliver gave a, a great description of this. In a poem, she said, When it's over, I want to say, All my life I was a bride to amazement. I was the bridegroom taking the world into my arms. And I love that, that sense of being bride to amazement. Um, to be amazed is to, it means literally, etymologically, to be in the labyrinth. Amazed. <laughs> So when we are amazed by things, even if they're difficult, we are willing to be walking the labyrinth. We are willing to be inside the question and to walk there um, and to actually become the question in our own lives. And um, that's a pretty intimate practice, the practice of being amazed. Okay, so all of these are part of that constellation of of unselfings that can happen with mindfulness. And the other thing I mentioned is the the moral dimension, the way that we are willing to be affected, which I've talked about a little bit, and um, and how we affect things. So to continue with um, Simone Weil, she she said um, that attention is the effort to counteract states of illusion, which we would call delusion. Attention is the effort to counteract states of illusion. And she described illusion as convincingly coherent but false pictures of the world, which is a great way of talking about delusions, too. Convincingly coherent but false pictures of the world. Okay, so this is important because here's where the moral dimension comes in. She's saying that attention, what we would call mindfulness, is an effort to counteract illusion or delusion. Um, and, And she goes on to say, it is in the capacity to love, that is, to see, that the liberation of the soul from fantasy consists. So she's linking loving with seeing clearly, with seeing things as they really are, and that that counteracts illusion, delusion, and allows us to unself, allows us to uncouple from the, what did she call it, the ego's tyrannies and needs, um, and, and turn toward the other. And in here, I also hear something about compassion, that compassion is not a, an emotion that we generate 
or something that we practice hard to be able to bring to a situation. That compassion in Vey's view is a kind of realism. That if love and seeing truly are you know, right next to each other, are part of the same thing, then compassion and seeing truly are part of the same thing as well. Compassion is a way of seeing. It's a fundamental kind of orientation toward life, rather than something we bring in or add on or feel in, in response to something. Um, and she pointed out that there's nothing in simple attention or mindfulness that necessarily carries this moral dimension. I mean, we can think of lots of activities that people do very mindfully (laughs) and very attentively that have very bad results, you know, very bad outcomes. So So mindfulness by itself, without this moral dimension, you know, has the potential to be actually problematic. You can become a much better burglar if you're mindful. Um, so, so she said that it, that, that it always had to be a particular quality of attention, this just and loving gaze. Um, okay, so she, she had in her mind the idea of a, of, a, of a good person, and that by definition a good person was someone who had to know something about her surroundings and most obviously the existence of other people and their claims. So now we've reached the thing about how um, one of the things that, that happens when we're unselfed is that we see that, th- that the world and others in the world have a claim, have some kind of claim on us. And that's an, a really important part of mindfulness, to recognize the claim that others have upon us. Uh, Faye said, to know that this person who is hungry and thirsty really exists as much as I do, that is enough. The rest follows of itself. So for her, the, one of the, the points of attention slash mindfulness is to really experience, to see with the just and loving gaze that the person who is hungry and thirsty exists as much as I do and therefore has a claim on me. Um, And if we do just that, if we really take in the reality of others, if we really allow ourselves to be interpermeated and affected by others, as she said, that's enough. The rest follows of itself. It's really easy to work out from there what to do once we have really accepted the reality of others. So then she talked about um, will not as unimpeded movement, you know, the ability to sort of do whatever we want and and make whatever happen that we want to, but will as something more like obedience to necessity. And what she meant by that is that um, if we're really attending to the reality of other things, if we're really allowing uh, that to affect us, then what needs to be done is going to become clear and clear and clear and where will comes in is our willingness, our obedience to follow what's become clear that needs doing, what the necessity of the situation is. 
And um, she said, this, is, this isn't a grand gesture. This is a series of the small moments of our lives. And she said, she said it in a particularly wonderful way. She said, the exercise of our freedom, which is she's equating with will, the exercise of our freedom or will, is a small piecemeal business which goes on all the time. And it is not a grandiose leaping about unimpeded at important moments. <laughs> I love that description of sort of self-will run riot. A grandiose leaping about unimpeded at important moments. And, the, and so then she says that the result of all of that is uh, if I attend properly, I will have no choices. Because if I attend properly, the necessities of the moment, the necessities of the situation, when looked at with a just and loving gaze... Um, will become clear or more clear or clear enough to do something. And so the number of choices will be um, necessarily reduced to what is the necessity of the moment. And she said that was kind of the whole point of, of moral life. Which is um, so counter to our usual way of, of looking at things that it seems really worth at least considering. If I attend properly, I will have no choices. And I'll just, um, I'll just close now by looping back to the, the Amachai poem and uh, talk in another way about mindfulness being not just an endeavor of a single heart-mind, the mindfulness here moves. It moves from Amakai through the poem to us. And if we're mindful readers or listeners to the poem, we'll hear that the whole meaning of the poem pivots on that word locked, that locked gate. That's what makes everything exactly the way it is. And I love the paradox of, of the word locked being the key to, to understanding the poem. But you know, think about how much of our appreciation of art, our love and experience of art, is really about becoming mindful of something produced by someone else's mindfulness. And so in that way, um, mindfulness is gloriously contagious, um, which is, again, quite different than that sort of single mind, single heart mind striding through the landscape with a certain attitude. It's a kind of... Um, it's a glorious contagion in this world of um, wondrous manifestations we share. So I'll stop there. Okay, thank you all very much. These talks are made available through your donations to Cloud Dragon, the Joan Sutherland Dharma Works. To learn more about her teachings and to make a tax-deductible contribution, please visit our donate page at joansutherlanddharmaworks.org.